Welcome back, everybody, as we bring our study of 2 Corinthians to a close today, and I am going to bite off quite a large chunk. We're going to cover the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. That would be chapters 10 through 13. Uh, But the study is going to be a little bit different this time because uh, I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. We're not going to read through all four chapters. But because these four chapters all have one common theme and you can't really separate these chapters out, I'm going to give you the tools so that after the teaching, you'll be able to read these four chapters and hopefully follow them because they're very difficult otherwise. Uh, To be honest with you, um, all the times I've read 2 Corinthians, these last four chapters never really made much sense to me. Uh, But this week that changed because I really got to uh, spend time in them, and uh, and it's an amazing, amazing passage. Uh, So this brings 2 Corinthians to a close. Now, you're going to be wondering, what are we going to do next now that 2 Corinthians is done? I'm going to tell you at the very end, so stay tuned, and I'll tell you what we'll be starting in on next week. So, here we go with 2 Corinthians. Now, chapter 10. Um, Now, I asked you in the Thursday update, what is the dilemma Paul has? What is this balancing act that he is trying to perform? Well, you get a hint of it right in the opening of chapter 10. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Messiah, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Here's the problem. In Corinth, Paul's away and he's writing this letter to them. In Corinth, there have been some who who Paul sarcastically calls super apostles who have come in and said, well, Paul, he's okay, but listen to us. We've really got the inside scoop on what God wants of you, and how to live out this life. And so the people had begun to suspect Paul of maybe not being quite who Paul was, not being a a true apostle, genuine apostle of God. And so Paul is in a predicament. He's in a predicament. And he talks about coming with boldness, but also with humility. And the predicament he has is this. Does he come to them as a lion, or does he come to them as a lamb? When you think about it, this is the predicament all of us find ourselves in at various times. When someone comes to you and they've misbehaved, they've done something wrong. There are times in the Gospels where you see Yeshua approach that kind of person, approach a circumstance with severity. And other times he approaches it with great gentleness. He was a friend of sinners, but he was anything but a friend to hypocrites. And so how do we know when to be the lion, to be bold, as as Paul puts it? And when do we just appear weak and humble, kind of uh, retiring and, and not very forceful? When do we exercise that lamb aspect? And we must be able to do both. And of course, we know that Yeshua, who is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And um, the first time he came, it was mostly as a lamb, but when he returns, it's going to be as a lion. 
So how do we know in our own natures when to be the one, when to be the other? Uh, any of us who are parents know what this dilemma is like. When your child uh, does something, sometimes you know a gentle touch is what's needed. Other times a spanking is what's needed. And we can't afford to get those wrong. It's very tough. I've always believed that God should give us a practice child or two before we have our real ones but, so we can make all our mistakes. But um, anyways, it, it is a tough call. And what makes it even more difficult for Paul is this. Paul's very uncomfortable having to justify himself to the Corinthians. He doesn't like doing this. And so he's got this balancing act he has to perform. So there's Paul in his top hat doing his tightrope walk. (laughs) And so we've already addressed that. He has to decide, am I going to be a lion or am I going to be a lamb? In fact, if you go over just a little bit further in chapter 10, he says in verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So when he writes his letters, he's very forceful and strong, but when they see him, he's like, this is Paul, this little guy who doesn't talk all that well. And I know in my own life, sometimes when I'm praying for someone or thinking about a situation, I'm thinking, well, they need to know this, and I need to tell them this. But then when I see the person face-to-face, it's like you just can't bring yourself to be too stern. You smile, you shake hands, and, like, settle down. And uh, it's always a, a tough call. So you got this lion-lamb conflict going on. And then he talks about boldness, being bold when he talks to them. Or should he be humble? Should he practice humility, not push himself ahead? And that's what he addresses in chapter 10 and the two opening verses. If you go over to verse 8, he says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the master gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So he he talks about the authority he has as one who's called as an apostle. But he'll also talk in these four chapters about he's there to serve, not to lord it over them, but to be under them and to serve them and hold them up. But the two words Paul uses most of the time in these four chapters are the words boast or boasting. In fact, he uses this word or some form of it 18 times in these four chapters. He uses this word more in these four chapters than all the the rest of the apostolic uh, scriptures combined, Uh, much more. So he talks about boasting that he's boasting that he's been called, that he's been given authority, that he's been given the signs of an apostle, that he's suffered for to be an apostle, that he's had visions, that his love for the people is greater, and he has to boast about who he is to justify his role as an apostle. But then the other word he uses is the word weak or weakness. And he uses this term, I think, six times in these four chapters. Now here's the real problem. Boasting is very, very uncomfortable to Paul because Paul knows the scriptures. 
He knows Proverbs 30, verse 32, and many other places in Proverbs where it says, if you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or you have, if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. So he's saying that this boasting that I am forced to do is very, very foolish and very uncomfortable to me. In fact, if you go over to chapter 12, verse 11, look what he says. I have been a fool. I've been foolish. You have forced me to it. So he's in this uncomfortable position where he has to justify his apostleship. He has to justify his ministry to the Corinthians. So to do that, he has to talk about himself. He has to describe to them, I've done this, I've been called to this, I have this authority, God has made me do this. But by doing that, he sounds like a fool, because fools boast. And Paul doesn't like to boast, because that makes him look like a fool. He talks about foolishness quite a lot in in these four chapters. Let's look at a few places. Chapter 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And so he begins to talk about some of the things he's been through and what he's done. And then if you go over to verse 21, chapter 11, verse 21. um, Actually, you look at verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. And then verse 21. He says, but wherever anyone, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. And then verse 23, are they servants of Messiah? I'm a better one. And then he says, I'm talking like a madman. And with far greater labors. He is so uncomfortable. He hates having to do what he's doing in these four chapters. Uh, Go on over to chapter 12, verse 6. He says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. And he's saying, you're forcing me to boast. It makes me feel foolish, because this is what fools do. But there's one big difference between me and a fool. When a fool boasts, he's telling lies. When I boast, I'm telling you the truth. So even I, if I have to engage in the foolishness of boasting, what I'm telling you is true. And then verse 11, chapter 12, 11, which we have on the screen. I have been a fool. You have forced me to it. So what are the things Paul has to defend? I ran through them quickly, but you didn't have time to jot them down. Here they are. Paul is forced to defend his authority. And we read that verse back in chapter 10, verse 8. And his calling, which is in chapter 10, verses 13 to 18. But let's look over in chapter 11, the second half of verse 21. He starts talking about the sufferings he has been through. So chapter 11, verse 21, we'll start with the second half of the verse. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Messiah? I'm a better one. And then just kind of as an aside, 
oh, I'm talking like a madman. And then he goes back to his conversation with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Five times he was beaten with 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the assemblies. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And he goes on and talks about in one city in Damascus, he had to escape by being lowered out of a window. You know, when I read this and I think of all the times I've been discouraged because somebody gave me a sour look or wouldn't say hi back to me or, or somehow, somehow slighted me, I think, I don't know the first thing about persecution when I read what Paul went through. So he boasts about all the persecutions he went through. He felt like a madman, like a fool having to do it, but he had to do it. They had forced him to do it. And then in chapter 12, he talks about the visions that he's had. This is a very bizarre passage, and we will come back to this at the end of the teaching so that we can answer the question about what is the third heaven. But let's begin in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Master. I know a man, the Messiah, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, the man in Messiah who he's referring to is himself. But he refers to himself in the third person because what he experienced was so divine, so amazing, so otherworldly that it's almost as if it happened to another person. Because when he came back into this realm, it was like, did that really happen? And that sort of thing just doesn't happen to people. So he he refers to himself in the third person. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Verse 3, And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told. Notice he didn't say he saw things. He heard things. We'll come back to that. Which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So Paul is the man he's referring to who got these revelations. He says to keep me... Uh, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. What is the thorn? A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the master about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Messiah may rest upon me. For the sake of Messiah, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me just insert something here. The next time you're tempted to complain because you're misunderstood, because you're mistreated, because people talk against you, they resist you, they're just not very kind and nice to you, and it's because you're serving God the best you know how. May I suggest that instead of harboring resentment, instead of exercising self-pity, which Paul hated, And that's what he was concerned with in the previous chapter, chapter 11, that he would sound self-pitying. Instead of doing that, I want you to think this way. God has privileged you to experience a little bit what his son experienced on earth, what all the prophets experienced, what every martyr has experienced. In fact, what every genuine servant of God has experienced on earth. And that is the resistance and the resentment of fleshly people, of unbelievers, and also some immature believers. So you're in some really good company. In fact, in Matthew 5, when Yeshua is giving his sermon, he says, Blessed are you, and men shall speak all manner of of, uh, evil against you for my sake. And what does he tell you to do? He commands you to be to rejoice, to be exceedingly glad because this is the way they treated the prophets. So, what should your response be when you're mistreated for being righteous? Rejoicing. Because God is allowing you to experience something what a Messiah experienced. But not only that, he's also allowing you to experience pain and some rejection, some ridicule, to keep you humble. And if you do not respond to the rejection the right way, you'll respond to that rejection in a boastful and proud way. And you'll want to defend yourself, correct the other person, and destroy the other person's reputation. Don't play that game. Allow God to do what he's going to do through those people. And allow what they've done to have its perfect work on you. Let it make you humble. Let it crush your ego. And if you allow them to crush your ego, those people who are persecuting you are doing you a favor. So, don't resist it. Don't feel like you have to justify yourself. Just model what Paul models and even more what Messiah models. You go on just a little bit further into chapter 13. Look what it says in verse 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. He's referring to Yeshua. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So, if people want to persecute you, 
That's when you put on your lamb nature. But realize within you, Messiah lives. The lion lives within you. And when Yeshua was on the cross, he said he could have called down how many thousands of angels. He could have just called them. They would have come to his defense. They would have sorted out this whole mess. They would have sorted out all this persecution and, and unfairness coming his way. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be crucified in weakness. We need to do the same. And then know that within, God is with us, that we're lions. And there's another time when our lion nature needs to come out. Usually when it comes to the defense of the innocent, that's when you can be a lion. So anyways, let's get back on topic here. In uh, chapter 12, verse 12, he defends his apostleship. Uh, Again, we've read verse 11 several times, but let's read it again just to get a running start. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these so-called super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the assemblies, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. He's he's mocking there. He's using irony. Forgive me for not burdening you. So uh, he even performed the signs of an apostle. And then the rest of chapter 12, he's expressing his love for the people. So Paul has been forced to defend his authority, his calling, his sufferings, his visions, his apostleship, and his love. You know, I'm no Apostle Paul. I'm not even close. I can't imagine going through what he went through and and staying faithful and strong. But, you know, being in a position of spiritual authority, like every person who finds himself in a position of spiritual authority, you occasionally find, you come to a time when you make a decision And the people under your authority don't necessarily like it. And so you have a choice. You can either say, well, this is what I think needs to be done. And then they just say, well, that's a stupid idea. Or you say, well, I've been praying about this. And God actually spoke to me and told me this is what needs to be done. And then they say, well, you must not be very spiritual because if God, if he would have told you that, he would have told me that. And if it was from God, I would agree with it. And so whether you tell them that this is something God's shown you or whether you, you just leave that to the side, not boast about the fact God's shown you something, then whatever you do, they're going to reject it. Either you don't hear from God or you're just not very smart. It reminds me of the passage <clears throat> where um, Yeshua is talking about John the Immerser. It's in Matthew 11. And, um, and, and Yeshua, he's frustrated. He's frustrated with the generation of people he has come to. And he says this in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. In other words, 
if we play a dance, you don't dance. If we play a, a funeral dirge, you don't mourn. And then he goes on, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, oh, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he's saying no matter whether it's John not eating and drinking or me coming to eat and drinking, your hearts are hardened. You don't recognize spiritual truth when you hear it. And so there's no way to really reach you. And then he finishes with this. He says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. In other words, Yeshua is saying, if what John is doing is right, if what I am doing is right, if what we're doing is wise, the proof will be obvious in time because wisdom is justified by her children, by your offspring. So, if you're in a position of spiritual authority, it doesn't work like worldly authority, like your boss at work or the, or the, the, the drill sergeant in the, in the army. You don't tell people to do things and then enforce your will upon them. That's not how spiritual authority works. A spiritual authority works this way. You make a decision that you've really prayed over and you know it's the right thing to do. If people follow it, they follow it. If they don't, they don't. Now, there are consequences if you disobey worldly authority. You may have to pay a fine or, or go to jail or, or whatever. And there are also consequences if you violate spiritual authority, if it's genuine spiritual authority. But it's not the authority, it's not the person who inflicts those consequences and enforces them. God takes care of that in time. And I know in my own life, when I have resisted and rebelled against spiritual authority, I paid the consequences. Nobody had to come down on me. The spiritual authority I was under didn't come and chew me out. But God had to come down and bring some things to my life to bring correction, painfully. And so when we violate spiritual authority, God, who is spirit, will bring spiritual consequences into our lives. And when we submit to spiritual authority, there's so much blessing and protection, so much goodness and good fruit that comes. So spiritual authority is something very much misunderstood, not only by those who are under it, but those who are in a position of spiritual authority. So uh, there's a, a lot to be taught on this, and I'm sure that over the coming year we'll be touching on this topic again because we see it all through the scriptures. Now in chapter 10, let's go back to that for a moment. And in verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Everything we've been talking about this far is a conflict, a conflict between Paul and these super apostles who are coming in and uh, misleading the Corinthians, a conflict between Paul's desire to practice humility, to be a lamb and not boast, and then the necessity that's forced upon him to have to boast and defend his apostleship. But the real crux of all the conflict is in the thinking 
in the minds of the Corinthians. This is always a source of spiritual war. The mind is spiritual. Your brain is physical. Your mind is not. It is completely and utterly spiritual. Your brain is like a radio. You can pick it up, you can weigh it, you can take it apart and look at it, you can break it. But the signal that the radio picks up is non-physical. It's, a, it's an energy wave, um, electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum that you can't see, touch, taste, feel. And your mind is like that. It is an utterly spiritual thing. And since it's spiritual, that is where spiritual warfare takes place. And so Paul is engaging in these four chapters in spiritual warfare because, you see, if you can change a thought, you can change a life. You can change your own thinking. You can change your life. But until you change your thinking and bring in alignment with truth, your life will never change. And I've often said it's easier to move a couch across a room than it is to move one thought through my mind and out of it. Sometimes it's impossible, it seems, to change a thought. Whereas in the physical world, we can move things all over the place, regardless how much they weigh. Verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. It's not physical. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, they're not physical, but they have divine power. What it has there in Greek is the dunamis, the, the, the power of theos, the power of God. The, war, the weapons of our warfare have the power of God behind them. That's a, a powerful thing to hear. And then he says, they're powerful to destroy strongholds. Now, what are these strongholds? They're not physical. He says, we destroy arguments. That's in the mind. Every lofty opinion, it's in the mind, raised up against the knowledge of God, which is in the mind, and take every thought captive. Thoughts are in the mind. Thoughts captive to obey Messiah, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He says here in verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. And that is verse 7. He leads up to it. Look at what is before your eyes. We're sheep. The Bible calls us sheep over and over. And I did a little research on sheep this week and found out that sheep have very, very poor eyesight. They have great peripheral vision, almost 320 degrees. They can see almost all the way behind them, but only close up. They only see what is close, but they can't see far at all. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, and he's telling us, look at what is before your eyes. The evidence of truth is always there in front of us, but the problem is our eyesight. We really have a hard time seeing things that are so obvious. We need to develop good eyesight. Yeshua tells the Laodicean assembly to buy eye salve because they're blind. You need eye salve so that you can see. 
And we need to pray for this eye salve, that God would touch our eyes so we can see things spiritually. We can see them as they are, not just as they appear to our nearly blind eyesight. We need to develop the ability to see what's going on in the spiritual realm. And so he he talks about the arguments, lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God, and thoughts. See, there's the reality of truth. And the definition of truth is reality. Pilate asked Yeshua, what is truth? Well, easy answer, it's reality. The problem is we don't see reality. What we see is only what we think about reality. What we see is only how we reason about reality. And we only see the bits of reality that we can see. And there's most of it we miss. What we want is truth. And truth is reality. All of it. But we don't see it all. But we need to. We need to do whatever we can in our power. And the way we're going to do that is by immersing our minds in the Word of God, the Scriptures, and touching the heart of God and seeing things through his eyes. Valuing what he values, hating what he hates, do the things that he does. Each commandment is a picture of what he does, if we have the eyes to see it. And to avoid the things that he says he hates, the things that are despicable, the things that are abominations. We need to align our lives, whether we can understand it or not, with the word of God. I often use this analogy, and I know you've probably all heard me use it before, but I'm going to use it again. Maybe one day I'll come up with one I like better, but for now, uh, this is the one we're going to use. Here's the power of a thought. Here's the power of believing a lie versus believing the truth. I use the analogy of, of us sitting in a group, in a in a synagogue, a church building. I have some dear friends from out of town sitting here right now as I record this teaching. And let's say while we're all sitting here and David's in there at the controls and let's say we have a dozen people or so in here and a policeman walks in the door. He's got the hat, the uniform, the badge, the gun, the whole works. And he says, please, no one get up. But we're aware that there's been a terrorist in the area and he has been wiring chairs in these buildings along here with explosives. He puts it right into the, into the stuffing of the chair. And uh, when you sit down, these explosives are armed. But when you stand up, they are triggered and they will explode and kill you. So... We don't know for sure which chairs have them or if any of the chairs have them, but we have a bomb squad on its way. So you stay seated, stay where you're at. It's all going to be fine. When the bomb squad arrives, they will come and fix everything and uh, everyone will be safe. All right, so what are you going to do? You're going to get up? I doubt it. You're going to stay put. And after a while, you're going to get miserable. You're going to start seeing the restroom, which is right there about 20 feet away. And you're going to think, what I wouldn't give to be able to go in that restroom. You're going to get crampy. You're going to, get, you're going to want to lay down, stand up, stretch your legs. You're going to be miserable. 
Well, let's say you sit here for hours and hours, and finally another policeman comes in the door, and he says, folks, I'm passing by. I see all the lights on in here. May I ask what's going on? And you begin to explain to him, oh, a policeman was in here hours ago and, and told us our chairs could be wired with explosives. And so this new policeman, he laughs. He says, oh, that's some lunatic that escaped from the, the loony bin. He's been, he got a cop uniform. He's going around telling people that we caught him. It's, it's all a bunch of nonsense. No truth in it whatsoever. Now what are you going to do? You're going to get up. You're going to stretch your legs. Use the restroom. You're going to think, oh, I'm glad that's over. But here's the thing I want you to keep in mind. What kept you in those chairs? A lie. You believed a lie. The cop didn't have to hold his gun to your head. He didn't have to tie you down to your chair with a rope. All he had to do was convince you of something and get you to believe it. And when, he believed, when you believed it, he controlled you. That is how the enemy works. This is, the how, this is how cults work. This is how so many things work. And every area of bondage you have in your life is because you are believing a lie. And you know why you believe the lie? Because you think it's really true. Your ability to tell the truth from a lie, falsehoods from truth, as human beings, our, our ability to tell the difference is very flawed. It's very weak. And I guarantee you and I, right now, at this moment, are believing some lies that we're very sure are true. How can we fix that? We have to have spiritual weapons. We need spiritual weapons. And the spiritual weapon that's described in Ephesians is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The Word of God. We need to be so intimately familiar with the Word of God that when we see deceptive patterns, we'll recognize them. When truth comes our way, we'll recognize it. Because if you depend upon your own human reasoning to recognize truth and falsehood, you will fail. You won't get it right. Because recognizing truth requires the spirit of truth. Intelligence is not good enough. Feelings aren't good enough. You must have the spirit of truth to recognize truth. Truth became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, came and lived among his own people. A people who supposedly were looking for him waiting for him, expecting him at any moment. He comes to them. But because the leadership was believing lies, they couldn't recognize the truth when it was right in front of them, when, it's, when he spoke to them. And in fact, they despised the truth so much, they crucified him. These were learned men. These were men who knew the scriptures, but they didn't know the word of God. Yeshua told them, you greatly err because you know neither the scriptures nor the word of God. They, they memorized the words, but they didn't know the word. We need to know the word. We need to grow spiritually so we can recognize the difference between truth and falsehood. <clears throat> Let me make a little diagram here. Let's start down here in the left-hand corner, and I'm going to write the word body. Okay, this is your physical body. 
Now, with my eyes, with my mind, I can see my hands, my arms, my legs. I can use a mirror to see the back of my head, my hair. And, and, uh, and if I look down at my body and I see a cut on my hand, my mind says, oh, I've hurt myself. My hand is cut. Or if I'm emotional, I might, ah, you know, I'm bleeding. But uh, you're going to recognize this. You're not going to ignore it. You're going to clean the wound to make sure it's, it's closed and put a bandage on it. You're going to take care of it so that way it heals. So from the viewpoint, from the stance of your intellect, you can view your body and make changes. If you look in the mirror and you realize your hair is sticking out all over the place, you're, you're, you're not insulted by that. Your mind tells your body, pick up the comb, comb your hair. Okay, that looks better. So we can use our intellect to look impersonally at our own bodies and make changes that we need to make. But here's my question for you. What's your instrument for examining your own intellect? What do you have that you can stand apart from your own thoughts, from your own opinions and your own emotions, and look at them? What's the the higher vantage point you can look down at your own thoughts and think, I think that thought is wrong. And um, I, I think this idea I have is a pretty fuzzy one. I'm suspicious about this emotion I'm having. I may need to to chuck that one out of my life. Robin has a sign on her desk. It says, don't believe everything you think. And I love that sign because it reminds me, I need to have something higher in my life. Just like my mind can view my body impersonally, I need a part of me that can look at my very thoughts impersonally and see what needs to be fixed, to see what needs to be changed, what needs to be repaired, what needs to be replaced. What is that part of you that is to serve that purpose? That is the $64 question right there. And we have an answer. The answer is your spirit. And a spiritual man knows how to impersonally look at his own thoughts, his own emotions, and make the necessary changes, just like your intellect can look at your body and make repairs and changes. Let this sink in for a moment. Because if you cannot do this, you are not a spiritual person. Remember that in 1 Corinthians, Paula talks about the fleshly believer. They're a believer, but they're fleshly. All their decisions are based on how they feel physically, or what's comfortable, what's not comfortable what they prefer and what they don't prefer. And then he talks about the soulish believer. They operate completely out of the realm of the intellect. The soulish believer also acts out of the realm of the emotions. You have to understand something. Remember this. In the scriptures, the scriptures make very little distinction, if at all, between emotions and intellect. Emotions and intellect. They are both things that arise from the inside, and there's a lot more emotion involved in intellect than we'd like to give it credit. 
But then Paul talks about the spiritual man, the spiritual believer. This is our goal. Because the spiritual man could look at his own intellect and thoughts and emotions impersonally and make the necessary changes. Whereas a soulish man will be in bondage to his own logic, his own human reasoning, his own feelings and emotions. And um, these people should never be put in positions of spiritual authority. And people, but we all are, we all tend to be soulish. That's what we all tend to gravitate to. But we need to outgrow that. We need to grow up from adolescence into spiritual maturity and adulthood. We must do that. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says that when they, talking about other super apostles and other leaders, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And see, here's what the soulish person tends to do. He says, okay, I'm hearing what Grant says. I'm going to be spiritual. I'm going to, I am going to um, explore my thoughts, and I'm going to investigate my thinking and feelings. I'm going to see how I feel about things and see what I think about things but they're still trying to explore their own intellect with their own intellect. It's like a camera trying to take a picture of itself. It doesn't work. And they're like people who are comparing themselves with one another, and therefore they're without understanding. You can't use your own intellect to investigate your own intellect. You can't use your own feelings to investigate your emotions. It will not work. You need to become a spiritual person or submit yourself to someone who is spiritual and invite them into your life to tell you what they see. And they will do it with gentleness and with truth. They'll do it with love and mercy, with your best interest in heart. It's going to take some humility on your part to do that. But this is how you can begin to grow into a spiritual person. We all have to go through this process. None of us come into this world spiritual. We come in very fleshly. In 11.3, Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Messiah. I think sometime in the early stages of when a person first comes to the Lord, there's a genuine love for God, a genuine, sincere love and devotion for Messiah. And it's wonderful. But as we begin to grow intellectually, what can happen is that sincere and pure devotion to Messiah can be replaced by cold intellect, the ego of our understanding of theology, Pride in our accomplishments for God. Look what we did for God. Look how I serve him. And we can begin to boast, not as Paul did, but boast in a fleshly way, in a way that we enjoy. And we all need to take inventory in our hearts and ask ourselves if we maybe aren't like the one assembly and and revelation that left its first love. Because it's easy to move on from simple 
sincere, pure devotion of Messiah, and instead start loving other things, Bible study more than Messiah, love witnessing more than we love Messiah, love our congregation more than we love Messiah, love serving more than we love Messiah. These are very subtle shifts, and the enemy is a master at getting us to substitute things in place of Messiah and simple devotion to him. If we would follow Messiah closely, we must love him dearly. And I invite all of you, and myself as well, to really examine, do you really love him? You once did, but have you drifted? And if you have, it's almost like in a marriage. You start to take each other for granted, and one day you wake up, and you realize my marriage is kind of cold and impersonal. And then you begin to reawaken that original love you had for your, your husband, for your wife. We need to do that with, with our Messiah on occasion. And David prayed to, that God would renew the joy of his salvation. What's the word for salvation in Hebrew? Yeshua. Rejoy, re- renew the joy of my Yeshua. In 11.4, Paul talks about some satanic substitutes, the serpent substitutes. He says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Yeshua than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel, good news from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's saying your guard is not up. We need to always be growing in our familiarity with the real Yeshua of Scripture. And those of us who uh, left the synagogue or left uh, or moved from the traditional church towards Messianic Judaism is because we want to know the Yeshua of the Scriptures better. But even at that, I've seen people who have come into the Messianic awakening and they fall in love with this Yeshua of the Torah, this Yeshua who lived out the Torah, the Yeshua that we see in the Gospels. But they don't exercise caution and eventually drift even away from him into a Yeshua who's a legalist or, or something else that's just not quite the Yeshua of the Scriptures. We need to always make sure we're focused on the genuine Yeshua. We need to be very cautious and use great discernment when there's a different spirit. And only spiritual people can detect when the spirit of a place or of a person or a situation changes. Recognize the people who are spiritually sensitive in your congregation and depend upon their spiritual sensitivity and pray for discernment yourself. And then a different good news. There are lots of good news out there, but there's the good news of the scriptures. And some of the other good news isn't nearly as good. In fact, we got kicked out of one church building because the good news of the gospel, the scriptures, was so much better than the good news that they were teaching. But that's another story. I'll get a lot of emails about that one. Well, I'm going to close with this because this is very important. At first, I wasn't even sure if I'd talk about this, but I, I am going to. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, Paul talks about these visions that he had, and he was caught caught up to the third heaven, the third heaven. 
And people wonder what that means. And he says, there are things I heard that I can't utter, I can't talk about. It doesn't say he saw anything, but he heard things and couldn't talk about them. And because of the things he experienced at the third heaven, um, God sent him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to keep him humble because what he experienced would easily make him proud and, uh, and maybe condescending towards those who had not experienced what he had. So what are these, what, the, what Judaism refers to as the four worlds? Well, let's start at the beginning. This is, you know, those, those maps and you'll see a thing that says, you are here. Well, you can put that right here. Uh, you are here. This is the current world, the present world where we live. And this is called Asiyah, from the Hebrew word Asa, to do or to make. This is the world of action, the world of doing, the world of busyness. We all know what that's like, don't we? This is a very physical plane that we live on. It's very experiential. Lots of things to experience here. But there's a plane higher than this world. As we enter into the spiritual, there's a plane higher than this one that the Jews refer to as Yetzirah. Yetzirah means formation. When God made Adam's body, it said he Vayetzer, uh, he formed it out of the dust. So it's the world of formation. And this is the world of intellect and emotion. And remember, as I said, the scriptures make a little or no distinction between the two. Intellect and emotion. It's from the world of Yetzirah that you can look down into the physical world. You can make something physically with your hands, but then your intellect says, Ah, I need to redo that. Not quite right. But then above that is the realm, the second heaven, the world of Berea. This means creation. The first sentence of the Bible is, Bereshit bara. In the beginning, God bara. He created. Berea is the world creation. This is the level of God's mind. This is utterly spiritual. From this level of God's mind, where your mind touches his, you can begin to look down and examine your own intellect, your own emotional state, just as you can use your own, emo- your own intellect to examine your own physical state. Now, these three words, Berea, Yetzira, and Asiyah, are words that come from, let me just put a box around those three words. They're words that come from Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 7. It says, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have, Berea, created for my glory, whom I have, uh, Yetzira, formed, even whom I have, Asiyah, made. Created, formed, made. They took the three words from that verse. And, of course, they looked how the words are used throughout Scripture. But it says Paul was caught up not to the first heaven or the second heaven, but to the third. And this world is called Atzilut. 
is the world of emanation. It's the world from which everything else emanates. Down here at the bottom, at the level of Asiya, there is separation. Everything's separate. I'm here. My friends are there. The camera is there. You are somewhere else. My Bible is here. And, you know, everything's separated out. But up here at Atzilut, everything is utter unity. Everything is light. And the light is so bright that, do we even call it light? How do we describe it? We can't describe it. This is why Paul could not describe what he saw, but he could hear things. That was the one part of him, his perceptions that, that could pick up something at this level. It's from Atzilut that the thin whisper of God can speak to us. Remember Elijah hiding in the cave? There was the earthquake and the fire and the storm and everything else, but he says, but then there was a thin whisper. Still small voice is how most translations put it, but thin whisper. That is the better way to put it. That thin whisper is something that's beyond intellect. It's beyond anything that... I could ever come up with or you could ever come up with. It's something that we can just barely hear that is coming from the utterly spiritual place of emanation of God. Understanding these four realms can help us understand better where we're at in the world. It also helps us understand the last couple chapters of Revelation where we see the marriage feast where Messiah and his bride become one. Because there's a day coming when these four worlds no longer exist as four worlds. They all collapse in together. They all come together as one. And this is when God says, and I will be with them and I will be their God. I'll be with them. They'll be with me. We will be one. Is what Zechariah refers to. It says, uh, for God, for he is king over all the earth, but in that day his name shall be one and he shall be one. And um, it's a day of utter unity. It's the day of bliss and joy that we all hunger and ache for. But in the meantime, while we're in this world of action, let's make sure we submit our doing and our actions to God's word, because God's word emanates from the spiritual. Let's make sure our thoughts align with God's thoughts, with God's words. And let's make sure that we are always moving upward, always seeking what is above, not the things below that are transient and temporal, but the things above, which are eternal. The things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In chapter 13, verse 5, the Corinthians have been testing Paul. They've been examining Paul. But Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's a response saying, quit testing me. I know where I'm at. You need to examine and test yourselves. Where are you? And that's a challenge I want to leave with you this morning 
to examine yourselves, test yourselves. Are you really in the faith? How much are you in the faith? How much are you comfortable, familiar with spiritual things? I'm not talking about charismatic extremes. I'm not talking about what you see maybe going on in apostolic Pentecostal churches. That's fleshly to me. And I know I'll hear it about some people want to correct me on this. I apologize if I hurt your feelings. I'm not talking about some kind of extreme spiritual behavior where we act like buffoons. I'm talking about a quiet, genuine, grounded, understanding, experience, and comfort with the things that are not of this world where God would speak to us because Yeshua said, my sheep hear my voice. I want to hear his voice. How good are you at hearing his voice? I'm going to get better at it. And I want to be able to grasp the things God is always speaking to me that I'm not hearing. And so I have to test and examine myself and always ask, how are you doing? Are you really spending time quietly and allowing God to speak to me as much as I'm talking to him? Am I hearing the request he makes of me and not just making requests of him? So here are your discussion questions. First of all, when were you a lion when you should have been a lamb? When were you a lamb when you should have been a lion? If you have little kids, you could probably look just over the last few days after both of those questions. Describe an incident where believing a lie brought you into bondage. And we've all done this, so take time to think. Or describe an incident where learning the truth brought freedom. Number three, what was Paul's thorn? What was its purpose? In 11, verses 13 to 15, Paul describes Satan's servants. How can we recognize them? This is extremely important because Satan's servants are everywhere in the world. How do we recognize them? Many of them carry Bibles and and, uh, preach online and on TV and even from pulpits. How do we recognize them? How do we recognize the false from the true? In 13.5, Paul says to examine yourselves and test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. How do we do that? So those are your questions, and then the notes and scriptures that I referred to are all at the bottom. So, in closing, the question is, what are we going to do next? Well, if you've been following along the teachings and the announcements, you know that a year from this month, This is June of 2021, and a year from now, in June 2022, I turn 70 years old. I will have finished my 26th year pastoring Beth Tacoon, and I'm going to retire. So, over the next 12 months, what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to finish out the way I started, and that's by doing the Torah portions. Now, I know it's June, and we're in the book of Numbers, and next week's Torah portion is Chukat, which is late in the book of Numbers, but that's where we're going to start. And then we'll go on around, and we'll finish right in this week's portion a year from now. So I really look forward. Though I've done the Torah portions, uh, the Torah cycle, four, five, six times over the 26 years. We're going to do it one more time. And uh, I really look forward to doing this. Now, I'd probably do it a little differently than I've done before. Not try to cover every verse, but just pick out the things that have been most precious to me over the years from each Torah portion and share those with you. So that's what we'll be doing starting next week. 
For a closing prayer, I don't think we can beat the prayer, the benediction that Paul uses at the end of 2 Corinthians, so we'll close with this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, for tikkun. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't get carried away with that one, though. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Master, Yeshua the Messiah, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And thank you for listening.